and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week, we're continuing our Best of 2021 series with the second of these compilation episodes. In my mind, I'd love to have snippets from every single guest I talked to this year on the show, but that would turn these rather long compilations into even longer compilations. So I hope that this at least whets your appetite and lets you go back into the past to hear some of the things in our archives. And speaking of, I also know that a lot of new listeners like to listen to these episodes. And if you are one of those noobs, please, if there's somebody that you like hearing from, go ahead and check out their full episode. And hopefully you'll stick around for even more new episodes coming out next year. Now, before we jump into some of the clips here, I teased last week that I would discuss my plans for 2022 in this episode. So stick around towards the end of this one to hear some of the news. More importantly, though, with episodes like this, I prefer to keep my intro short. So let's just go ahead and run down my usual spiel that I do at the top of every show. And then let's get on into it. Before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining at higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in video format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash nerdnews today. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff, so you might want to take a look too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom, however way you like to get it. All right, now let's go ahead and start this week's compilation episode in a big way. And when I say big, I mean we're going to play a clip from my interview with the one and only Walter Koenig. What do you even say to the man who played Chekhov in the original Star Trek series? An actor who has said practically everything there is to say about his time on Star Trek a hundred times over. Walter couldn't have been more gracious and down-to-earth, and I'm sure we actually did find a few things that he hadn't discussed in quite a long time in that episode. But for this clip here, let's do something a little bit more popular and well-known. Here, Walter remembers his time on the second Star Trek film, The Wrath of Khan and reminisces about working with Ricardo Montalban and that infamous scene where Khan somehow recognizes Chekhov. So I wanted to ask you, Walter, about something that, again, I'm sure you've spoken about this in depth, but I want to hear it just straight from your mouth today, too, and that's about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And you, you do mention this, of course, in the book as well, so I urge folks to pick up the book and read it for themselves, but the story I'm getting at is that scene you have with Ricardo Montalban where he recognizes Chekhov somehow. And uh, you talk all about that, so I'd just love to hear your take. Uh, if you could kind of tell us a story about Star Trek II and the Khan-Chekhov relationship that shouldn't be. 
Well, you know, uh, I, first of all, Ricardo was a wonderful guy to work with. I mean, he uh, had been a movie star. He was a, you know, leading man. He, uh, he had a huge history of work. One story that is perhaps a little bit beside the point, but not entirely. Uh, Nick, Nick, this was Nick Meyer's direct, first directing job with us. And uh, he came to it very, very professionally. And it just assumed that as director, he uh, was ultimately in charge the way uh, any, uh, any director should feel. But ne- and certainly television directors never feel that way because there's always the lead, the leading characters who have the, the, the final say in the portrayal of, their, of the characters they are playing. Because they, the, the directors are there for a week. The leading actors are there forever. Well, it, it, it actually extends this to supporting actors, too. Never got a, a, a note, I think, from any of the directors who came on the TV series. So we're, we're starting to rehearse uh, uh, The Wrath of Khan, and uh, Nick, uh, Nick Meyer watched us for a little bit and then asked us to retire to his dressing room for a, for a table talk about what we're doing innocent as to the hierarchy of things. And we're all sitting there and he says, uh, Ricardo, now in this scene, you're a little bit, you're a little bit, a little, it's a little over the top. And I went to myself, oh my God, here it comes, here it comes. He's gonna get crushed. He's gonna be crucified by by uh, Ricardo Montalban. And I looked at Montalban to Ricardo. He goes, ah. I see what you mean. Holy cow. I never expected that. Not on our set. Not with, well, not on our set. <laughs> you get the point. Um, so it was, he was delightful. He had no ego. I mean, he was bigger than life, but it was, it calls for it. And what was wonderful was the, his casting was so strong. He was such a, 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 a prominent, uh, dominating figure that he was a great match for our antagonist. What you want in any screenplay, in any story, is that the protagonist, that the antagonist is a match for the protagonist. Otherwise, you know who's going to win in the end, and you don't want to know entirely who's going to win. Or if you, if you know that Captain Kirk is ultimately going to be successful. You want to know that he was in a fight. And Ricardo presented that. He was such a powerful presence uh, on the screen. So it made the whole story, it gave it, it, gave it friction and uh, this immovable object and unstoppable force kind of thing, which is very important for storytelling. And at the same time, he wasn't a monster. He didn't have six tentacles. You know, he was a human being. He was a human being who had, who had a sense of vengeance and revenge. And in some, we have all known that in some small way, unless we've been born to be a priest or something, or a religious figure. Uh, in any case, so I thought the casting was brilliant. I thought he was, his portrayal was great. I thought the way they used him in the story was great. And then, you know, the whole thing with Kirk's 
ex-wife, lover, and their son. All of that was really, really in, very engaging and made watching the film uh, a, a great, a great event. And of course, Chekhov did have a few things to say. Now, regarding, and I see, I remember, which is really amazing, regarding how, why it played out the way it did with uh, Khan saying, oh, yes, I remember you. You, I remember. He didn't remember me because I wasn't in this series when he made his first appearance. But of course, he wouldn't, he would not have remembered that in any case. You know, he, he was an actor you know, reciting words, committing, committing them to memory and, and, and trusting that he had, he had met me before. Um, I knew it from the get-go. I knew it before the, the script was was um, shown to any of the cast. In any case, I was given the script to read before most of the actors. I had a friend on the inside who got this, and he gave it to me to read. So I read this early version of the script, Spock dies in the second act. That's preposterous. You know, you, you can't take one of the icons of the show and kill him off, you know, as if it was just another supporting character and I called up Harv Bennett and I told him you can't do it he thought I was calling about lobbying for more to do with my character that may have been in the back of my mind but I never brought it up and NBC said I don't talk to actors and I said I'm not calling you as an actor I'm calling you as somebody who's examined story structure and you can't kill Spock in the second act and I said but I'm sure you've already been told that he said no and I was, I was blown away. I couldn't believe that you, you, anybody would do that. So he was impressed enough to ask me to do a Trekkie run on the entire story. See, I'm getting to it. Um, and I read it, and there were uh, some little nagging things that uh, were inconsistent, some dialogue that was inconsistent with the way we would, we would say things. And But at the same time, I recognized the fact that Spock had never met Chekhov. So I had the, I had the opportunity to be a Boy Scout and a, and a total moron and tell them that, or just ignore it, you know. So I ignored it. I, mean, I did mention a dialogue that would not be said. Uh, I did mention small things, but I... Um, I uh, ignored the fact that that was inconsistent with what we had already established. And nobody else mentioned it. So um, we went ahead and and uh, shot it that way, uh, which was great because it gave me more to do. Uh, I knew there would be some backlash, um, but I made it into kind of a joke when, when people would ask me and they would ask me, Everybody, at every at every convention, there would be somebody who would jump up so proud of, of knowing this detail was incorrect, that Chekhov did not meet Khan before, that um, I decided to make a joke out of it. And I did. I, I said, I said, Chekhov was on the, on the, on the Enterprise during, during the series. He was just working on the third deck behind the boiler room. And was suddenly taken with uh, a need to, to uh, attend 
the, the bathroom facilities and was so sick that he was there for a long time. And when the door, and, and Khan in the, time, in the meantime was indeed uh, in distress, in urinary distress, <laughs> and was pounding on the door until finally pounding on the door. Finally, I let him in and, and he said, you, I will never forget. So I just incorporated that dialogue from the movie into my story. And I got, got a laugh and everybody sort of let it go. You know. Well, I can definitely appreciate that. I'd probably be doing the same thing in the bathroom the entire time. So, yeah. <laughs> Katie Swink appeared twice in Star Trek DS9, the series where her husband, Armin Shimmerman, starred on as the lovable and devious Quark. Her first time on the series was as a Bajoran politician named Rosan, but it's her second role on DS9 in their final season as a Vorta named Luaren that we're going to highlight in this episode today. Here's what Kitty recalls from her last on-screen role in Star Trek, and what part of it was left on the cutting room floor. Um, but yeah, since we also, you know, we, we brought up now the other appearance you had, so let's just jump into that. And okay. uh, Kitty returns to Deep Space Nine in Season 7 <laughs> in the final arc of the series. Uh, you're playing a Vorta named Luaren. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, again, did you audition for this episode or was it a callback because they remembered you? Uh, how did this come about? I, I, they, I don't know. They called me in and um, I just got a call one day from my agent saying, can you go in? And I said, sure. And I happened to be with Armin and I'm going to do something after he did his ADR on uh, the episode before that. So Jeff Combs was on deck waiting to go in to loop his stuff. After Armin and we were talking, I said, I'm, I'm reading for a border tomorrow. And he said, here's the trick. Be obsequious. I'm going to take my glasses off so I won't be able to see, but you'll be able to see it. He said, be obsequious and go like this. So I, I didn't wear glasses in those days. So I was obsequious and I flared my eyes and I booked the job. Thank you, Jeff Gomes, wherever you are. So that's the secret to being a Vorta is flaring your eyeballs. Apparently, yeah. So as for the part of Luaren, now, again, this one you mentioned had a ton more makeup here. I mean, you've got that Dragon Ball Z-style power scouter on your head. Uh, so tell us, <laughs> what was that makeup process like? I mean, this looked like it was a lot more difficult and a lot more arduous for you. It was long. Uh, the I didn't mind these were, I didn't mind these. The ears were final, but they make you a little deaf. I, I had never worn contact lenses at that point, so I found them really uncomfortable because they were scleras that covered your whole um, eye. And then I had three hair pieces on to make the hair thing work because at the time my hair was about this long. So that was uncomfortable, but it was fine. It was fun. And I, I think I started at like four o'clock in the morning and finished at one o'clock in the morning that night because um, they shot some stuff while I was in makeup probably. And then, yeah. So, but it was really fun. I was working with a lot of people I knew and loved. Andy Robinson is one of our dearest friends. He killed me at DED and um, um, John Dickery. Um, John Dickery was on the episode and I love him. Uh, Larry Pressman was the, I mean, it was just like a lot of, it was old home week of people that I, knew and and cared about so what could be bad andy has directed me in so much theater and um we've acted together and i just adore him and uh i just adored everybody on the episode it was really fun we had a good time 
And we can't leave out, of course, Nanaz in that scene as well. Uh, we've yeah. got Renee's in that scene, Casey Biggs, uh, Salome Jens, who, again, that's another person I would love to speak with. I, I, har- I didn't talk to Salome very much because I think she was just trying to hold. She was so tired. She had been working all week. Um, but she was very generous and lovely. Casey and I, I, I have, <laughs> of the Rat Pack review, I've been married on camera to a lot of them, including Casey and I did a movie of the week together where we played husband and wife lawyer. So, you know, we had already done that at that point. So that was fun. Casey, Jeff Combs, all those guys are, are buddies. They're pals of ours. So, uh, and we're all theater actors. So we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, it was pretty great. And then uh, it's interesting because I, I, I didn't work with Nana that much when I was working with her because we just didn't have that much interchange. But um, it, it's always so great to have to be in her presence when you're working because she's so focused. She's so incredibly uh, on her game all the time. It was, yeah. Now, we did mention that Luaren does not make it out of this episode uh, at all. Uh, she is D.E.D. Um, so the thing is, with that episode two, we basically see you, there's some action, and then we see you on the floor. I mean, was there ever a, a scene where you were actually filmed being shot, or was it just kind of always going to yes, be Yes, they filmed me being shot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we filmed, they filmed me being shot, which was fun. I liked being shot. I, I, I did a movie once where I, like, they scribbed my uh, Paul Schrader film, uh, I was playing in Patty Hearst and they actually put a squib on my head and blew me up, but they don't show that in the movie. So I thought, so you put a pockmark in my forehead and you didn't show it. Come on guys. But yeah, but I, I loved doing that. And, and Ron Moore said, if only I had, cause he created Laura and he said, if only I had known that you were such a good woman for that, I would have, you know, replicated you and had you come back. I was like, well, <laughs> too late now. Sorry. Thank you very much. And see. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Reilly is easily the record holder for the most number of TV and film roles that I've ever spoken to on this podcast. Even if you don't recognize the name, you will know who he is instantly if you see a photo of him. So if you don't, go ahead and Google him right now. His mustache is one of his defining features, which you would have seen him with if you watched his two appearances on Star Trek Voyager as Seamus in the Fairhaven episodes and as Dr. Lucas from the Enterprise Augment Arc episodes in Season 4. But it's his role in the classic TNG episode The Inner Light that we discuss in this clip, a fan favorite that is also notable for Richard because it's one of the rare parts he played where he didn't have that all-powerful mustache. Let's go ahead and listen in and learn what the story is behind that. Now, I think this is the most important question I'm going to have in this entire interview today, but when did the mustache become a permanent fixture on Richard Reilly's headshot? Uh, it was it was a very strange thing that happened. Uh, uh, I, I had the mustache. I'd, I'd been doing a, a play at the, uh, uh, at the Yale rep, uh, called a moon over Miami. And I had the mustache for the character there. And that, so I still had it when I came to LA and, uh, and when I auditioned for Ferris Wheeler, they wanted the mustache. So, uh, so I had it for, for the, uh, half a year or over. We shot the 13 episodes of Ferris Wheeler that we, that we did. We were shooting Ferris Bueller right next uh, on the on on the Paramount lot in a soundstage next to where they were shooting Star Trek: Next Generation, and so I would I would run into these people all the time, and they said, "Well, oh, come, come over here and do a you know do an episode of of Next Generation." I said, "I'd love to." He said, "But you know you can't have that mustache if you're doing if you're doing Next Generation." I said, "Yeah." They said, "Yeah, the uh, 
the uh, uh, Mike Westmoreland, who's who's the, uh, the makeup guy, has got total control over what your you know what your face face looks like. And I said it's fine. I, you know, I it comes it came on and off when I was doing theater all the time from show to show. And so uh, and so okay, so they canceled Ferris Bueller, and I got an audition a couple weeks later uh, for Next Generation, and I went in, did the audition. And after the audition, he said, would you be willing to shave your mustache? And I said, yeah. So um, uh, I, I, uh, I, I, got, I got cast. Uh, I, did, I did it. It was inner light. I uh, played Bataille. Uh, and, um, and then uh, I, I, while, I was, uh, while I was doing it, uh, I, got, I had an audition for Free Willy. And I got cast in that. So I didn't have the mustache when I was doing Free Willy. So we were gone for 13 weeks in in Mexico and uh, and uh, Oregon and uh, Seattle and up in up in the uh, San Juan Islands and um, uh, and I came back and you know did, still didn't have the mustache and was started auditioning and and where I had been fairly uh successful in the auditions before that nothing was coming through so my after a couple of weeks my my agent started calling around the, to the various casting people he says is there a problem they said no no we love richard we just don't know how to use him without his mustache <laughs> so i grew it back and i've had it ever since <laughs> so i didn't know there was a connection to star trek with the mustache so how about that absolutely yeah <laughs> Well, since you brought up Inner Light, too, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, we've got a lot of other things to discuss here. There's so much because, again, your resume is so big. I don't, I don't even know where to begin or where to end this thing. But uh, on the topic of Inner Light, uh, had you auditioned for Star Trek previously? No, that was my first audition with oh, wow. Star Trek. That's pretty rare for a lot of folks when we talk to them about their Trek appearances. Oftentimes, they'll say they've auditioned again and again and again, and it's taken years for they get the role. But you nailed it first try. That's impressive. Yeah, well, I don't I, – again, I, I think I, I, I knew – I mean, I had become acquainted with a lot of those people because we were, we were working right next, right, you know, next to each other for well, for six months. So that may that may have been part of it. But uh, yeah, it was I I was uh, I was surprised, but but you know, happy about it as well. <laughs> This episode is a very, very beloved part of Next Generation. It's a lot of people's favorite of all time. Uh, when you first read the script, and you first got it in your hands. What did you think of it? I, I you know, I loved it because it, you know it. It it offers uh, uh, Patrick that the chance to kind of live a whole life as, as somebody else, and um, and it, and it, it and the being part of that um, of that world was 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 very exciting because it was a it was a world that was dying and everybody was trying to figure out how they were how but how they were going to find a future of, of some kind, um, and uh, it, it's a it's a beautifully written script too. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, I, I don't know. There's, there's something very special about it. And, uh, you, you know, I, I, even as you know, an actor in it, I, I, I felt that, uh, uh, and Patrick, he, he worked night, literally night and day. He would, we would wrap at, at, uh, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night, uh, on a shooting day. And then, uh, the AD would come up to him and say, okay, Patrick, we'll get you out of, out of makeup and, and we'll have you home in an hour, get something to eat, because we're going to pick you up at 5.30 tomorrow morning to start it over again. And, um, and he was, he was, he was very excited about it. Because I, I, I think, I mean, he, he said for often that this was, this was one of his favorite episodes. And I think part of it was his son playing his son. I think that, I think that meant, yep. meant a lot to, too. And, um, but it was, it, it was, it was very, 
again, this is a sort of, you know, sitting around talking between setups. Uh, there, there were a, a number of times when, when, you know, we would be waiting for, waiting for the next scene to be set up. And, and, uh, uh, Patrick would say something about, about theater and, and, uh, and it became apparent that both of us had, had spent a lot of time in theater, had done, and had done, you know, uh, had done and seen a lot of stuff, and so we we ended up having some really wonderful conversations between between takes, and that was that was exciting. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique three D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces, like 10 forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, Barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live, and that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine, and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate. That's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease, because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission 
by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trek Untold. John Fleck was a guest I had a great time with. I felt like we clicked instantly. He was very excited to chat about his insane number of appearances in Star Trek history because he had a lot of them, folks. And we had a ton of other things to discuss, too, that were really, really fascinating to me. Fleck is known best in the Star Trek universe for his appearances as Silic in Star Trek Enterprise. Although, as I alluded to, he's also appeared numerous times in TNG, DS9, and Voyager. All in different roles, and all of them with a ton of alien makeup and prosthetics. But Silic had a very unique look that very few other aliens in Star Trek history had. And in this clip, John reminisces about the process to become the leader of the evil Sulevan, and thoughts on how his character began in the series, and the way it all ended. Let's just start at the beginning. Uh, and, you know, as an actor, I'm just wondering, you know, a lot of folks create backstories for their characters. For someone like Silic, did you ever approach it that way? Did you create a backstory or, or did you just kind of take the role as it was and run with it? Run with what they gave you? I think the essence for, for Silic was I was going to prove to, um, to Scott Bakula, <laughs> to John, to John. What was his last name? John Archer? No, Jonathan John. Archer. Yep. Jonathan Archer. You called him John in the show. Silic never said Jonathan. You always called him John. I was going, it was, a, it was a, who was going to win the, the game here. And I was going to prove that we aliens or we Sulaban were much more intelligent than any humans. And it was quite the little chess game. I always felt like I was playing chess with John and I was going to be on top. Of course, I always ended up on the bottom. I mean, we don't have to go into these. Uh, the- we just talked about your bulges, John. We only have an hour here. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I do remember distinctly uh, working with Scott and just what a gentleman he he was and so kind. And hey, once again, he came from the theater world, you know, um, uh, what, a, what a sweet, kind man, but uh, and very professional. And uh, but it was fun. It, it was fun. It's nice to have an arc, you know, where you can kind of play uh, with. And, uh, you know, so that so in terms of backstory, oh, geez, you know, uh I can't remember if I, I, I try to ground it as much, you know, reality and in, in so much as my imagination can conjure just so it's not just an actor saying words, but, uh, you know, I always feel with, you know, with these, um, aliens, like, uh, like backstory is like millions and millions of years of evolution and no, uh, what, what, emotions everything is different you know but the primary thing was to to win so to speak uh win the game well tell us a bit more about scott Bakula then because i don't really have to talk about him much in the show i've talked to like one or two people i've gotten to do some scenes with him but you're having not just scenes you're getting tussles with him uh in your farewell episode you get to be out of the makeup too uh what do you remember about working with scott was he a good scene partner Oh, he's a great scene partner. Very giving. You know, a lot of times when, you know, the camera, you know, uh, turns on you and they're feeding you lines, a lot of, you know, stars um, don't give you much. But uh, Scott was always there. I swear it's the theater, you know, training. And he was just kind. And, you know, you could talk about stuff. You didn't, you know, I I just felt very open and free with him. Plus, I'd seen him do a lot of theater, you know, back in the early days here in L.A. So we had that connection. And I think he appreciated that. And, um, yeah, just fun, you know, fun to hang at a cast party with him. You know, it just he, he felt like he's just a normal guy. Silic and Archer have a ton of fights throughout those episodes together. And I've heard that uh, Scott Bakula is pretty handy. He liked to do his own stunts. 
but in the terms of these fight scenes, how often was John Fleck the one actually throwing those punches and jumping around? Well, I, I, I'm pretty physical. And then back then I was even more physical. God, that was like, what, 20 years ago? About, um, so uh, I did, I didn't do a lot of stunts, the bigger stunts, but you know, the fight scenes, I, I try to do as much as I can, but uh, there was always, you know, a good stunt double ready to jump in for me, you know? So uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. So in terms of the character's ultimate uh, path, you know, we do get to have a farewell to the character and rewatching again, it felt like it was a little bit rushed and that Silic didn't really get to have his full potential as a character. Uh, what did you think about the way he went out? Well, I think you might be right that it was rushed. I think they probably got an announcement that the season that, you know, the franchise was closing, you know, so they had to wrap it up quickly. Yeah, it's like, whoa, all of a sudden I'm going down to earth and I don't have the makeup anymore, which I appreciated. I didn't have to do the makeup, but... uh, But, hey, I was grateful for what I got. I got to have a little uh, moment, uh, man-on-man, so to speak, with with Scott uh, when we weren't fighting, uh, me and my makeup. And uh, so that's kind of what I remember, uh, working late, late into the night on the the Paramount set there. uh, And uh, I don't know. I I do remember just being there and not having – I was just so relieved I didn't have to do all the makeup. And just thinking, you know what, this is kind of an actor's dream to be working at – you know, and Hollywood on the Paramount studio lot and got a nice scene. Uh, you know, hey, life is good. Uh, it was also, uh, oh, I do remember, I, I was also working at Carnival during the same time. So they had to coordinate shooting schedules. And, you know, I was doing heavy prosthetic makeup on Carnival as Gecko. And I was doing all this heavy prosthetic makeup on, 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 um, uh, as Silic. And my skin was starting to burn and flake off from all this makeup removal. So I remember the day when I, at the last shooting day on, um, um, you know, uh, Enterprise, when I didn't have to do the makeup, my skin was all peeling. So they had to do a lot with moisturizer and makeup to make it look like I wasn't, uh, uh, had a bad sunburn. So uh, I do remember that. You were doing like 10 hour makeup days on Carnival, right? Because you were doing like full body prosthetics. Well, well, yeah, that was like, I think, uh, like one of the first episodes of uh, uh, Carnival. And uh, it was, uh, I had a couple full body days. And that would be uh, probably, uh, I'd have to show up like about three, four in the morning, you know, for like, you know, a a 10 a.m. shoot. So I'd be pretty much in the makeup trailer you know for six hours or more yeah yeah crazy and then to take it off was another you know three or three hours at least but ka-ching 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 overtime baby <laughs> i mean i feel like that's got to be like the main motivator to help you sit through those three hours plus of makeup every time because you did it so many times for star trek and other other things i know i know i did uh, have a little calculator in there oh we're in overtime oh we're in golden time okay torture me all you want On the topic of aliens, let's go ahead and jump over to a clip now from my episode with Jason Marsden. And I geeked out hard on this one because Jason was such a huge part of my childhood throughout all of his work in animation voiceover. If I start talking too much more about it, I'm going to start freaking out again, in fact. So let's just keep going with this line of thought here. And we did spend a ton of time discussing some of that VO work, but really it was his Trek appearances that were interesting to me. Jason did two episodes of Star Trek, but one of them was actually as a voiceover in the episode from TNG, Silicon Avatar. It was his second role, which was in D-Space 9, as a Ferengi named Grimp from one of my favorite episodes, Bar Association. Jason told us all about the process to become a Ferengi in an episode that was filled with orange faces and orange hands. 
and a fun story about Jeffrey Combs, who showed up as Brunt in that episode to try and break up Rom's union. So let's go ahead and take a listen. So was this your first time doing really heavy prosthetics for a role? No. Um, um, well, you know, I guess, was that the heaviest, I guess? No, because I had, I had like ears for like the Munsters and I had hair for Ear Indiana. I guess it was the first heavy prosthetics. I had always been fascinated with prosthetics um, and dabbled in them. I even took a class. So I've always, I was liked having prosthetics put on, but I guess, yeah, I guess this is the first time I had like the full, the full thing on. Yeah. I still have my, my nose and my cheeks from my experience doing the, doing the whole thing. And look, someone even had a, made a, there's a baseball card of the, of the guy. So this is an episode that is very heavy with Frangies all over the place. So I imagine there's a lot of orange paint going on all across that makeup yes. room. So uh, talk to me about sitting in that makeup chair. What was that like for you? I expected it to be like two hours. They, they had it down. They had me in and out in like 30 minutes, wow. maybe even less. I mean, it was just, they had it such, such down to a science. I mean, like you get there at six in the morning, some other people, some like extras um, who are even in more makeup. This one woman who was in like full body makeup and, and prosthetics all over the place. I mean, they're there. They start at 4 a.m. And then, then we get in there. Um, but you know, it was, it was just really e- almost a disappointingly easy process because <laughs> I love, I love it. I'm so fascinated with it. I really wanted to be, uh, I really wanted to be in there. And this episode too, is just such a fun premise as well. I mean, this is basically Rom unionizing Quark's bar. Yeah. Uh, did, did you like the script? Was it, was it a fun script to you? Yes, I did. I, I, I it was a departure from what I was used to. This seemed, it was very heavy in comedy you know, I, I hadn't watched a lot of Deep Space Nine. I did like it, um, but I, I there was more heavy drama and more science fictiony stuff with uh, with uh, Next Generation. This this episode was just bred in just this uh, in more character and comedy, which was fine. I still I still had a blast. Yeah, yeah. Somehow within both these roles, you managed to dodge techno babble twice. So that's pretty amazing too. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, that's the only thing a lot of actors have to do on Star Trek is they'll have to rattle off all this like technical information, like, oh, reverse the polarity and oh, no. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And, and you managed to avoid that basically both times around. Right. But I did get to say one of the, the rules of acquisition, which was uh, which uh, which is which is a treat. Do you remember that rule of acquisition? I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you remember Absolutely. that rule? Rule of acquisition number 211. Employees are the rungs on the ladder of success. Don't hesitate to step on them. And we couldn't go this far without also talking a little more about Jeffrey Combs. I mean, because he's been in so many great things. Everybody loves to talk about him in Star Trek stuff. I have yet to injury him. That's the dream is getting Jeffrey on this show yes. too one day. Uh, did you have a chance to chat with Jeffrey at all? No. The ah. first time we saw him was when the the door opened and his character was there. I didn't know who it was. And also, like, if you remember that episode, like, he has this relentless monologue towards everyone that he may... I think we... I don't think we even rehearsed it i think we just shot it so like he he arrives and we're all supposed to be like oh shit it's him and we're very reverent around the ground and but he's talking i couldn't even though i was supposed to be like be looking down I, had, I couldn't not look at him because he was so in it and i i'm like who is this guy i recognize this guy and then i then it hit me the reanimator this this guy this character actor that i love so much um he he knocked out i think he did two takes and that was it it was so i was so fucking impressed uh, and floored by that performance. I didn't get to talk with him afterwards. I talked with him years later. We did a cartoon together and, and uh, he's very nice, very accessible, very, very right there. We, we, I, I think he's, he said he remembered me, but I don't, I don't think he did. You know, he's just very, he was a very sweet guy. 
I had a really great year in 2021 in terms of getting some of the big names in Trek to come onto this show. Last week, we heard a clip from my episode with Jonathan Frakes. And two episodes after that one originally came out, I spent some time with Dr. Beverly Crusher herself, Gates McFadden. There was, of course, plenty of Trek talk in that one, but we also dove deep into a few other stories that she had about her career, including a kiss with Bill Murray that, uh, if you don't know about that one, you better check out the episode. But of course, we're going to keep this Star Trek focus for this compilation. So let's take a listen to some of the things that Gates McFadden remembered from working on one of the, again, very fan-favorite episodes of TNG, Data's Day. And I got to ask you, of course, about Data's Day. I feel like everybody in the world is probably asking you about this. Um, and, you know, we haven't even talked really too much about your dance background. We mentioned a lot of your acting background. We haven't really talked a ton about dancing. But, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear about you working with Brent Spiner and getting him to follow all your crazy moves. I mean, did he have a background in dance before that? No, he had done some maybe, you know, in college or something. And he could do a soft shoot, the 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 time step. And we worked on some other stuff. But, no, basically we rehearsed it. And, uh and then I cast someone as his stunt double because um, his dance double, not stunt double. And that guy was really, really good. He was a superb tap dancer. And then they probably speeded up the camera as well as is my recollection. So he's not only dancing incredibly fast when he does his pirouettes, but I, I loved coming up with that sequence. I came up with a lot of the little details that are in the sequence and even a couple funny lines that I got approved. They, you know, they wrote the basic premise and stuff, but that was so much fun. Yeah, that I wish I could have done that endlessly, that kind of thing where you get to create something. But then I would not be the genius that they were when they wrote all these scientific episodes and, you know, philosophical. I mean, they, they, Bronin and Ron and Michael Piller and, you know, Rick Berman. I mean, there, there were some incredible scripts. I mean, Dr. Crusher doesn't really get to leave sickbay too often or really leave the ship too often. But, uh, you know, I've noticed that on occasion when she does, I've felt like there's been some dance moves in things. Like I was just watching an episode. I'm going to be super nerdy here. I was just watching the episode Attached and I noticed where you basically walk up onto the transporter pad. You basically did like, I don't know the exact terms, but you kind of like did a crossover with your legs into like second position or something. Uh, it felt very, what? very elegant. <laughs> very, I know, right? This is super duper nerdy. It's something I noticed. I love uh, it. That's so funny. I mean, did your well, dancing ever dictate any of your mobility on screen? You know, you are who you are because of the way you move. And so when the, that's always when I do a character, especially if it's a character that's not close to me. That's the most fun thing is what are the shoes like? How do you have to walk? And what's the weight? Where does it go? I love all that. Um, so, yes, I would assume that people on the ship needed to keep in shape and be agile. Uh, I would say Crusher, I did a lot of away teams, actually. I maybe didn't do as much as some, like Riker, but I did do, I, I remember because I always had to carry for several years that stupid medical kit that would open and everything would fall out. I mean, they should have talked to Louis Vuitton because there was no clasp. It was just, it would stay closed because they wanted it to open very quickly when I put it down. But meanwhile, if something happened and it just came off your hand, that was, you know, a three minute pickup in the sand on planet hell, you know. When I first started this podcast, I made a list of guests I wanted to have. And Patricia Tolman was literally on the very top of that list. If you don't know who that is, Patricia is a stunt performer who did a ton of work on Star Trek shows, as well as stunt work in many other big TV shows and films. But on top of doing stunts, she was also a legitimate performer, including a recurring role in Babylon 5 and many other shows where she wasn't exactly doing stunts, but acting, which is something that's very rare in that industry. 
Needless to say, Patricia has done a lot, and we spent two hours talking about some of the highlights of her career, and we really barely even scratched the surface. Here's a small taste of that as we discussed many of the alien roles she played on Star Trek, and find out about a stunt that got a little bit rough for her to do. So you did a lot of prosthetics also on Star Trek. You played a lot of different types of aliens. Uh, so I'd like to ask, which one was the worst for you to get made up and which, which had the worst prosthetics? That's a good question. Can I tell you the most humiliating? Of course, we love that. I mean, I had I, I, I was in full Klingon and that took a long time. And then there was a, a Deep Space Nine episode called Melora. And she had a, a lot. Uh, it took a lot of time because we had this extensive wig and forehead piece as well as the pale makeup. But um, the most humiliating, I got to be an actual character and everyone was, uh, you know, the crew was cheering for me because I got to be a character for this whole episode. I don't die till the end. So I was actually acting most of my scenes with Patrick Stewart. Right, we're so, talking about uh, Starship Mine, in fact. You, that's right. That's correct. And my character's name was Kiros. Michael Westmore, who's in charge of makeup uh, on Star Trek, is so excited. He said, oh my God, I'm going to make you a brand new alien we've never seen. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. And the, and the hair ladies, oh, Pat, I'm going to do something so awesome with your hair. It's going to be so great. We're so proud of you. So I couldn't wait. And my first day I show up and Michael basically puts a vagina on my face. It looks like there's a lady's clitoris right on my forehead. And then and the hair lady, Joy, teased my hair up to look like Bozo the Clown. I had to go like that through a week with Patrick Stewart. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. And he's like, he look, takes one look at me. And Patrick goes, oh, Patricia. <laughs> Just like with deep sympathy. Oh, Patricia. It was so awful. I mean, to be fair, there are a lot of Star Trek aliens that look like various phalluses or, or lady mm -hmm. parts. So, I mean, you're, you're part I mean, of the club now. I guess so. You know, I bore it like a champ. I said nothing. <laughs> I did my best, you know, but it was a massive disappointment, I must say. Although walking behind Patrick Stewart for that whole episode was a joy because he's wearing riding tights. He was supposedly going horseback riding on his break, you know, and so he's wearing these tights. And he has an awesome bum. And That's I got to follow news. him around for an entire week. So it made up for it. <laughs> and I was going to ask you about what it was like to be performing with Patrick Stewart. But I guess really the more important question is, how is his butt? So now we've got an answer to that. <laughs> we've got an answer. It, of course, it's, it, it, you know, it's amazing. And he's, he's a delight. He's a joy to hang out with. He's a really super nice man. So I'm sure you can all imagine that. He's exactly what you'd hope he'd be, you know. And it's kind of a fun episode because this was basically Die Hard in Space, this episode. So there is a lot of action. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I do die at the end. My, <laughs> as per my normal, whenever you see me on Star Trek, you know something bad is going to happen. That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time you don't see me, though. Most of the time I'm somebody else. Now, folks like to hear this kind of stuff. You know, we know that you mm. have a rapport with your stunt performers, with your fellow stunties. Uh, but mm. what about the main cast, folks you are doubling for? Because you doubled for a lot of the principal cast on different shows you were in. Mm -hmm. I mean, do, you, do the stunt performers kind of stay in their own corner on one side of the room? Or do you get to really intermingle and form relationships with the principal cast members? That's another good question. We It depends on the situation. Um, Sometimes the, the cast gets to take a break, a well-deserved break. So uh, the times that they are on the set, it would require when they blend in and out of the scene. So leading up to and then after 
the stunt. If there's an after in the scene or less, if they cut the scene and you come back later, they leave. Once they've done their ramp up to it, they're gone. Um, I, I was lucky enough because I'm there all the time that, you know, I did have my own friendships. Uh, but out of respect, we tend to uh, stand back and stay away from the cast so that they can focus on their lines and what they're doing. And um, if there's, you know, if they come over and interact, great, but we don't initiate it generally, unless I need to put a pad on one of my actresses or, you know, I need to show her what she's doing or I need to see what she's doing so I can do what she does and then do the stunt. That kind of time we do have together. I did that with Laura Dern on Jurassic Park. But um, my one of my favorite interactions was when I was doubling the Nav Visitor for a fight scene. And Tim Russ was the Klingon in that episode. I can't remember the name of it. They have a fight and then and he punches her in the face. So it, what how, how that works is whenever the camera is like over the shoulder of the principal. So if it's over Nana's shoulder, you're seeing the back of her head, but you're focused on Tim, then that's me. And if it's the other way around, then that's Tim's stunt double and it's on Nana. And Nana is... A, so she's a dancer. So she's really good with her body and she knows choreography. She looks amazing in a fight. Uh, it, it's not like she needed me to make her look good. That, that was not the case. Although I, Terry Farrell did need me to make her look good in a fight. That was not her gift. Great. That just gives me a job. But for, um, for Nana, I was just kind of feeling superfluous, like, oh, my God, she doesn't need me here. You know, they paid for me and I, I don't need to be here. Uh, but we'd flip it around. And she she's so she's so cognizant. They would say, hey, Nana, do you want to be the in for Tim? And she'd say, no, no, I, I need Pat to do it. And she'd go step off the set because she knew that I wouldn't make residuals unless my body is in the shot. If even my elbow is in the shot, I'll get residuals that will require that will qualify me for that episode. And that's very important for a performer. Um, it's not a lot of money, but it adds up over time. Right. And it goes towards your pension and your health care. So um, Tim was also really good, really handy, very talented. And um, Nana had had stepped off. And it, this was the moment where Tim was going to throw the punch. So I'm, I'm standing in place and we rehearse it. Tim's perfect. And as soon as they said action, he stepped into the punch, which means he closed our protective distance and he smacked me full on in the head. And uh, um, I hear the whole crew go, <gasps> you know, that intake of breath. And, and Dennis is like, Pat, are you okay? I said, don't cut, don't cut, keep going. Because I mean, I'm already punched. We might as well use it. You know, it looked real because it was. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then, then I turned around to tell Dennis I was all right. That the crew did another <gasps> because I had this huge lump on my head. As you know, you know, anything on your skull and your head has blood vessels very close to the surface. They react instantly. You will bleed a lot from a head wound or you'll bruise very quickly from a head wound. And so I had this big egg on my head. But in a way, it was great because it totally justified my entire day on the set. You know what I mean? I saved Nana from that happening to her. Completely justified hiring a stunt double for that. Turns out they also had a TV guide shoot that day. Can you imagine if she had to go to that TV guide shoot with this huge egg on her head? Wouldn't have worked out so good. Tim was mortified. He was so cute. He was just devastated. I was like, hey, dude, I'm fine. 
It's totally fine. And, and actually, he did me a favor. So it's all good. <laughs> I've seen him and teased him about this many times. So basically, this episode has now become a lot of really funny stories that were actually horrible, like when they happened. So that was not really that bad. I think everybody else was so worried for me. But I was like, oh, no, it's, you know, I'm good. Trek Untold isn't always about the actors, and I have learned that I really enjoy talking to the behind-the-scenes crews just as much as the performers. One of those behind-the-scenes crew people we had on the show this year was Max Cervantes, who was a prop maker on TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise, and a little bit of work on some of the films, too. Max did a little bit of a show-and-tell with us, in fact, and showed us some of the props in his personal collection that he worked on or collected from his time working on Trek. And he told some wild stories that I never knew before, and I'm pretty sure a lot of you guys didn't either, about the things that he made. But the one that I think is very important to Trekkies is the Sword of Kalos. You might remember it from the DS9 episode that goes by the exact same name as the prop. There's a lot of rumor and innuendo about what happened to that prop after that episode aired, and Max came on the show to clear that all up. So let's go ahead and listen to Max set the record straight about the Sword of Kalos. Talk about some Klingon stuff again. You also had a hand in making the Sword of Kalos, which is like one of the most iconic DS9 props. But I know there's been some debate about what your involvement actually was. So maybe you can kind of clear up that and tell us the whole story behind right. the Sword of Kalos. Well, I didn't actually build the Sword of Kalos. I made the display base for the Sword of Kalos. The Sword of Kalos was designed by Dan Curry, who's an amazing, really awesome guy, effects coordinator and designer. He, he also had a lot of experience in the Asian fighting arts. And so he was the one who designed the original Batleth for next gen. And then from that designing the, the sort of Kalos for deep space nine. And then that was turned over to one of our guys who made the sword itself, which is made to look like what's called a Damascus steel finish. So it has all these undulations in it because Damascus steel is made. I'm, I'm not a, a metallurgist, but from my understanding, Damascus steel is made by, folding the metal over itself while it's being forged and pounded. And that's what gives it its unique texture. The original was made out of one piece of aluminum. We took a mold off of it. We cast them uh, in either resin, hard urethane resin, or for the stunt fighting ones, they were made uh, out of uh, a rubber, a synthetic urethane elastomer, which feels very much like car tires. It has a, it's a little bit soft, but it has a hardness like a car tire. And then we would cast them um, and then we would put the leather strapping on them. But I designed and I made the base for the sort of Kaless. Uh, very last minute, uh, Alan Sims was the prop master for that for, for Deep Space Nine. And he was the nice of the two prop masters. We were Alan Sims is awesome fellow. And it was like, oh my God, you know what? This, they don't, they didn't call out a stand. They never said anything about it. And so the words, it's just going to be laying there. He says, that's not very cool looking. He says, could you make me like a stand really quick? He said, well, yeah, I, I have that. The year before that, I had made a costume for myself and my friend, Mary Cordero, which we wore to Worldcon in San Francisco. We won first place for best workmanship for our costumes. And I designed all these Klingon glyphs, my own custom shapes and everything for it. And I pulled out the molds and I showed them to Alan. He goes, oh, yeah, these will work great. He says, yeah, we can use these. And I show, look, we can use this shape. We can put that one there. We'll put this one there and we'll put that there and this. And so 
I literally designed it on the fly right there in front of him. I said, well, we'll have these two wooden rods, which will hold up the da- the sword, and then we'll put a rectangular base on it. So I basically designed the base for the Sword of Kales. And all of those glyphic shapes are my own design work. So that's what I did for the Sword of Kales. And then a couple of years later, Alan, we're still working on Deep Strike 9. Alan brought me a Sword of Kales. And it was one of the ones they had used, a stunt one that they used for fighting. It was pretty banged up. He said, could you fix this up for me? And I said, i tell you what, Alan, I have a spare casting right here. Wouldn't you rather have this bright, shiny, brand new one? And compared to me fixing up this shitty old one that's all beat up and torn. And I'll tell you what, I'll do it for you for free if you let me have the original. And that's what I did. Alan was like, I don't care. I'll, I'll take the brand new one. I'll let you have the shitty old one, but that shitty old one is screen used. And I have it to this day. Um, I have now it. Now we know what happened to it after war flooded at the airlock. Ex- exactly. <laughs> and I, I have, now I don't, I don't know how many of the stunt ones that they use for fighting. We made usually we'll send two to set, but again, I don't know. I, I, it's been such a long time. So I might have the only one. There might be another one. I don't know. But I, I have it hanging on my wall in my uh, staircase. I used my staircase kind of like as a display. So, so much blank walls. I used it to put stuff up on. And it, it hangs on the wall there with a bunch of my other Star Trek stuff. That Star Trek wall communicator I showed you earlier hangs on the same wall next to the Sword of Kayla. So I have like a whole play on area there. If you watch Star Trek Discovery, chances are you are in love with Linus, and really, who couldn't be? And the actor behind that Saurian makeup is David Benjamin Tomlinson. Linus is the first Saurian to serve in Starfleet that we've seen on screen, excluding the books and the video games, and David manifested that role into something that even he never expected to become as popular as it has. Here's his story about the process to become Linus, and a story with Doug Jones that helped David really find his way deeper into that part. We've spoken with several other actors who have been on Discovery who have had done very heavy prosthetic roles, and they've had all sorts of things that they've learned from Doug Jones in particular. Uh, so I'm curious what you've learned from Doug. Let's talk maybe season one. I don't know if you had a chance to talk that much during season one, but uh, what, what are some lessons you've learned from Doug about working in the prosthetics? Uh, and then also maybe, uh, I guess we'll take a step forward. Uh, what did he tell you about working in the prosthetics and also about finding your character under the prosthetics? Doug is amazing. Doug has been a remarkable mentor and a wonderful friend and an incredible ally on set. And he has provided, uh, he's always ready. If I have a question, I'll check in with him about something and he always has an answer. So he's, he's incredible that way. He is absolutely incredible. And he, and uh, so he, there have been little pieces of learning along the way and not all from, not all from Doug. So season one trial by fire. Klingons, uh, very intense, exciting, very challenging, learned a lot. And we get into season two and we have Linus. And the first, the first uh, time I was went to set for, uh, we did a camera test for Linus and I saw the prosthetic on the counter in the prosthetics trailer. And I was like, oh my goodness, he's, he's gorgeous. He's gorgeous. And we put it on and we went, they took me to the bridge because they wanted to film uh, me again on a set to see how the lights, how it worked with his eyes. 
And James McKinnon, who was the head of uh, prosthetic department at that time. Uh, So I was like sort of orienting myself and and figuring out the feel of the mask. And and James came over and he whispered in my ear. He said, uh, don't be afraid to drive the prosthetic. And that was a huge penny drop moment for me because I was like, right, it's like a dress. It's like, don't let the outfit wear you. You have to wear the outfit. So, I, so it, it, you know, you can twist the head. You can, you can find the language. You can, you can do the work behind the prosthetic to really bring it to life and really punch it forward. Uh, I had a great piece of advice from Doug in season two. I was playing in episode six, I was playing a Kelpian on a beach and I was, I had to stride across the beach with my ganglia in my hand and, and ask my sister what had happened. And so I had to do this, uh, it, those, those unbelievable boots that uh, the Kelpians have to wear. So I'm managing that on the sand and the sun is in my eyes and I'm, I have to land on this spot and then in the sand, keep my balance and have the ganglia and the sun and, and, and everything just felt like it was working against me. And I said to, we, Doug and I were talking at the end of the day and I said, um, God, it just felt like today um, uh, it was everything I could do just to transcend the, all the challenges and he said, my boy, that, that, that describes my entire career. And I was like, oh, bang, that's a huge piece of it too, is that the job is you are constantly transcending the challenges in your way. There's never going to be a day that you aren't uh, feeling handcuffed in some way because you can't, you don't have your sight or you don't have your hearing in the same way, or, you know, you've, your balance is off. Like there's, there's always something to transcend. And that was another huge piece. Those are two. There's more. Let's see if we can refresh your memories to go along. Maybe. I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they'll you. pour out. They're, they'll pour out. But um, being on set with Doug. Uh, uh, oh, and this is this is something else I've I've learned too. Um, being on set with Doug, I think we we're both always excited when we're on set together because it means that there's someone else holding the same kind of space. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, we're, when we're on set together, we both know what the other person is experiencing. And when someone is sort of in that experience with you, it just makes your shouldering of the experience lighter because you're not alone. And so when we're on set together, it's always wonderful because there's so much support and love. And sometimes that looks like just sitting quietly together. Um, Sometimes uh, we're laughing or hugging or whatever, but um, it's, it's it's just lovely to be in the room with someone who's dealing with all of the stuff that you're dealing with. It's a pretty powerful, pretty powerful thing. Uh, what part of David Benjamin Tomlinson is in Linus? And is there any part of Linus <laughs> inside of him? I've learned so much from Linus. <laughs> I've learned so much from Linus. You know, uh, we were what we were talking about earlier in the in the interview about um, sometimes feeling socially awkward or 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 whatever. Um, I feel like that's something that I have in myself or feeling like not quite a part of things, uh, feeling like an outsider. Um I feel like that's uh, something that I've judged in myself or feel kind of can feel negative uh, in myself. Like, oh, I wish you fit in better or whatever. And when I started playing Linus and I started spending time, I noticed that Linus uh, was awkward as well, but that he held his awkwardness in this really confident way. Like, yes, uh, you know, like uh, it's hard. It's hard not to when I I just want to go into uh, going to him. I don't think you can legally do that. CBS will sue us. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not gonna. Uh, but it's it's like he he's like he 
the essence of the character for me is like he holds his awkwardness and his unusualness and his uniqueness in in a very confident way and i was like oh and it's possible to do that i don't have to sort of like feel insecure about the fact that maybe like i talk about the cauliflower paradigm when we're talking about an important thing like i can just uh, and so that's something that i'm working on as a result of playing the character so i think he has some of my awkwardness I think he has some of my loyalty because I I'm a Leo. I'm very loyal to my friends and family and very protective. So I think he has those qualities. Um, uh, and there's a there's a real elegance to him. And I don't know that that's mine, but there's also a <laughs> weird elegance. I've learned from him, like the to be confident about my own insecurities about fitting in or being feeling awkward uh one but uh the teleporter episode in the third season where he the thing that i loved so much about that storyline um is first of all i love that the writer uh chose to kind of like just comment on the fact that we're not all easy adapters to technology like sometimes every time that there's an app update or like it's fun to think that all of our heroes were in the future and everyone's going to adapt easily but i think it's really really great to kind of like point out that we not we don't all like every time if there's an instagram update or whatever it's just like what how does this work what is this feel you know there's that moment and i i love that that was represented on the show but i also love uh in terms of linus in that episode is that he just didn't give up like he we've all walked in that door at the wrong moment or sat in the chair that we shouldn't have sat in and been like oh and it's so tempting when those sort of like you know embarrassing things happen we get shut down and we feel like i i shouldn't try anymore that was but he doesn't stop trying he just keeps working and then ultimately he figures it out in my mind, there was a scene that we didn't see, you know, where he ends up where he needs to go. And he's like, oh, I understand this now because I kept trying. And so, like, since I shot that episode, there have been moments where I'm just like, something's gone. Like, ugh, and I'm like, oh, you know what? Just no, keep trying. I think especially now we're so results driven as a as a people right now. And like it, it has to be perfect out of the gate. And it, and it just isn't sometimes a lot of the time. And it's tempting to be like, well, if this didn't go right, then I'm not going to do it. And it's like, yeah, you have to keep trying. And there's no shame in keeping trying. And so I love I love the experience of getting that kind of insight from him. I mean, there's kind of that classic thing in sci-fi, and especially in Star Trek, where the alien is the outsider who's looking in, and eventually he does learn to basically find his way in and become accepted. And uh, I think especially for a lot of LGBT folks might be listening and saying, I mean, a lot of them will relate to a character like Linus or other similar alien types because they're trying to find themselves, and they're trying to find acceptance too. I mean, have you found that as part of your process? I, as a as a person, I have, you know, since I came out, I am a big proponent of uh, finding your tribe. So I find my tribe everywhere I go. And I have ended up on this show that is filled with people uh, on my tribe. It is a, an, an amazing gift. And uh, as far as Linus goes, um, he, he uh, the crew embraces him. Like the crew absolutely accepts and embraces him. And so he which is why I think he holds it in so, uh, his sort of like quirks and such confidence. Cause he knows he's utterly uh, respected and, and admired and enjoyed by the crew. And so both Linus and I have found our tribes in the Star Trek universe. And that is a, a huge blessing too. 
And that is it for our pair of best of episodes for 2021. And I know I keep saying it, but 2021 was really an amazing year for the podcast and for me. When I first started the show back in 2020, I didn't even think anybody was going to listen to it. Here I am now gearing up for 2022, and I can't believe I had the chance to speak to so many of these people and also connect with all of you. It shocks me still that people actually listen to the show each week and that my numbers actually keep growing somehow. Heck, I even have Patreon supporters, and by the way, thank you guys for doing that, and that baffles me even more. So honestly, thank you to everyone who has listened and supported the show. I really can't do it without you. So with that said, you guys won't be hearing from me for about two or three weeks after this episode airs because I've got some stuff that I'm working on. And what is that stuff? Well, it's plenty more of the content you already like hearing from Trek Untold, but in addition to that, my goal is to give you some other things to check out. Thanks to amassing so many interviews with so many talented people in Star Trek, I'd like to launch an offshoot of this show called Tales from Trek Untold, or at least tentatively titled Tales from Trek Untold. What that would be is me compiling certain interviews together to tell stories from people who work together in Star Trek to tell one cohesive tale of Star Trek history. These tales from Trek Untold will be given to Patreon supporters first, and then released to the general public a little bit after that. So if you want to get in on these episodes before they do make it to the public, that's the way to do it. I've also been doing Star Trek toy reviews on my YouTube channel for several years now in a series called Trek Back Tuesday. And despite having an overflow of 100 Star Trek toys still in package waiting to be reviewed on video, uh, things got a little clogged and congested this year, and I haven't had the time to really work on that as much as I wanted to. I hope to get back to that, especially with new Trek toys on the way from Playmates next year, but I really do have some other Star Trek-related videos I'm working on, and some other unrelated Star Trek videos as well that I want to get out next year. So keep your eyes on my YouTube channel for that, as well as my continuing series where I've been building the Hero Collector Build the Enterprise set, which at this point I'm up to now episode 6, and I'm hoping that by next year I should be a little bit more caught up, and I have a lot more of those coming soon too. And if you've never been to my YouTube channel before either, there's plenty of non-Trek things to check out as well, so I hope you'll give it a watch. But overall, 2021 has been a very, very busy year for me, working on Trek Untold and working on other things outside of this too. And I'm about to give myself an even bigger headache by doing all these Trek things, so I really hope you guys keep coming, that you help spread the word, and that you continue to enjoy Trek Untold in all of its many different formats, and all the stuff that I'm working on outside of it as well. So thank you, again, for choosing to listen to Trek Untold each week, because I know that there are a ton of other Star Trek shows out there, and it means a lot that you came to check us out this year. Even if it was just for one episode, or even if it was just for this episode, but even just showing up like this to listen helps us out in a big way. I hope you've all had a safe, healthy, and happy 2021. I know it's still pretty weird out there, but hey, the year is now almost over. 2022 is coming, and I hope that the coming new year is even better than this past year was for you. I appreciate your support of Trek Untold, and I hope that you guys keep baffling my brain every month by coming back here to listen to more episodes and check out my show and all the things that you guys are doing to support it. So when I tell you to live long and prosper, please know that it's coming from a very genuine place, and I hope that you do. So that's all the snippets we're going to play for you guys for this week, but make sure you come back next week to hear part two of the best of Trek Untold from 2021. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, which is just one word in all those platforms. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or any of those other locations, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating if you can to help show other listeners how much you like this podcast and spread the word. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. If you're enjoying Trek Untold and in a position to financially support the show, I hope you consider being one of our Patreon supporters by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can help us out for as low as $2 a month and get some pretty sweet perks. Shout out once again to Triple Fiction Productions, who you can check out at triple-fictionproductions.net. 
If you're a collector of Star Trek toys in any size or scale or enjoy prop replicas, you're going to love the quality of their 3D printed products, and I'm sure you will be a repeat customer. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, send an email to me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope you'll beam up again with us next week for another episode of Trek Untold. So until then, I'm Matthew. Thanks for listening. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.